0: We continue on the chronological life of Jesus and we are in the last week of his life and, and we're, here we are in Monday morning of the last week of his life. He is going to be crucified on Friday and uh, uh, we, are, we are looking now at, at uh, we're up till Monday morning and uh, that's where we're going to pick it up in the chronological life of Jesus. And we're going to read in Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, we're going to be reading from verse 12. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. And remember, Jesus is staying in the village of Bethany. Bethany is on, this, on the, on, on the, the uh, base of one hill. You go up part of the way, you're in Bethpage. You go up to the top, you're on the Mount of Olives. You go down into the valley and up on top of the next hill is Jerusalem. So from, from uh, uh, Bethany where he is to Jerusalem, it might be a 30-minute walk, maybe less, uh, uh, but, but something like a 30-minute walk. So not that far, and he's staying in the house of, of uh, uh, Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead formerly, and uh, his sisters Martha and Mary. That's where he liked to stay. And so uh, here we are in Mark chapter 11, reading from verse 12. On the next day, when they left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. So that seems kind of odd. Why would he go ahead and and proclaim this curse over this fig tree? If the fig tree, it was was not the season for figs. You know, it seems like a, a kind of a funny thing to go with this expectation, but here you see that this book was written by eyewitnesses who understood that area of the world. And in Jerusalem, there are fig trees, and the fig trees actually can bear figs, but prior to their bearing figs, when they are in leaf, they bear these little nodules that are edible. That's what he went to get. And they weren't on that tree. So it wasn't like he was looking for, for, for figs. A, he said he went to see if he could find anything to eat. It doesn't say that he went to find figs to eat. It wasn't the season for figs. He wasn't bearing nodules. And then he curses this fig tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Then we're going to see the results of that curse back when they're coming back from that day's, from when they're returning on, on Monday late afternoon. But He curses that fig tree. But that's the instance of it. And so certainly we can, we can say, well, what's the spiritual meaning of that? And it could be that He's intent upon our bearing fruit. He's intent, intent upon our bearing fruit both in season, as the Scriptures say, and out of season. The Scriptures say that we are to be ready to make a defense for the hope that dwells within us. We are to be ready for this both in season, as the scriptures talk about, and out of season. Whether I feel like it or not. And in fact, some of the times that I've been most productive in sharing with a person is when I really didn't feel like sharing with them. But I was cast upon, and it was obvious at the moment that I had to fill in and do this. So it's not based upon my feeling, it's based upon the Word of God and the power of God so it's not based upon how i feel because if it were based upon how i feel i just assume not do it the easiest thing to do is not to share the easiest thing to do is not open up it's a much harder thing to share and we are to be ready in season and out of season and so let's look at verse 15 of mark chapter 11 then they came to jerusalem so remember they go up to the top of the mount of olives back down into the valley and back up into uh, up to jerusalem on the next hillside. And it says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So, this is the second time he has cleansed the temple. The first time he cleansed the temple was three years ago, three years earlier, and they were buying and selling. And so, what was happening in this temple, and we talked about it when we talked about the first time he cleansed the temple, this was called the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the high priest, and you will see that, that uh, uh, you will see honest spoken of of the high priest, you will see Caiaphas spoken of as the high priest during this time of Jesus' ministry. And we say, well, I thought there, were two, there was only one high priest. There is only one high priest. But honest was the high priest that was appointed by Israel. The Romans didn't like him, and they appointed his son-in-law Caiaphas in his place as high priest. So there was one high priest that had been set there by the Romans. There was another high priest that had been set there by the Jews. So that's why sometimes you will see both of them referred to as the high priest. One was Annas, the other was Caiaphas, his his son-in-law. But this was called the Bazaar of Annas because, remember, it was the Sadducees. The Sadducees made up about two-thirds of the Seventy on the Sanhedrin. One-third was made up of Pharisees. It was the Sadducees that controlled the temple compound. The temple compound made a lot of money because people would have to come and bring their sacrifices. If they brought an animal that to them looked like a perfect animal, that there were no blemishes on this animal, they would often have to bring it before the, high, the, the priest, or and the, one of the priests would say, one of the Levites would say, hey, this is, you know, there's a little mark here. You can't offer this thing up, and then you'd have to buy an animal from them. And then they take your animal in exchange and resell it to somebody else. And so, and, and so the, there was this buying and selling going on. So they were making a lot of money because very often you'd come from a long distance. And the prices, there was price gouging and this was going on right in the temple compound. And this was the second time Jesus had thrown them out. Because he threw them out formerly, but then they moved back in and he's throwing them out again. So this is the second time that he does this. What he adds new this time is he says, I don't want any of you carrying any merchandise through this temple compound. That's new. That he hadn't told them last time. And this, of course, got the Sadducees, the leaders, really upset. And so they they didn't like it because he was really disrupting their business. But the crowds were loving the teaching of Jesus, so it was not an opportune time for them to, to lock into Jesus and, and arrest him. They were going to do that in the night. They were going to do that later on. And this opportune time was going to come based on what Judas, the, the betrayal of Judas, which we're going to see in a few days from, from, from this time. Okay, so this same sort of incident is spoken about also in, in uh, Matthew and in Luke. But what we're going to do, so, so th- there's not a whole lot to add from those other two Gospels. They duplicate a lot of what's there. But we're going to continue now on this, on Monday afternoon. And so let's look in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, and we're looking now at Monday afternoon. So what's happening on Monday afternoon? So this was Monday morning, and now Monday afternoon, so Jesus is up in the, in the temple compound ministering. And we're going to read in John chapter 12, reading from verse 20. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so, so there's some Greeks there, there's some Greeks there, and they, it says that they were who were among, who were going up to worship at the feast. So these were Gentiles, these were Greeks who had converted to Judaism. So there were many Gentiles that converted to Ju- Judaism. They were under obligation like any other uh, Jewish male, they were under obligation to go to the Passover feast in Jerusalem every year. This was an obligation. If they were going to walk as good Jews, this is what they were supposed to do. So they, were gonna go, they were, had come up to the feast. Remember, people went up to the feast several days before, <clears throat> often a week before the, 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 the feast, just to... Go through a cleansing ritual to make sure there was no defilement, because you know if you get out of your home environment and you go to another location, you you can really focus in, and they can make sure that they're going to be purified and ready for this feast. Well, they come up. So remember, these are Gentiles who have been converted to Judaism. They're not Jewish by descent. And this was a very common thing. Many, many, uh, in fact, Judaism was, was often very evangelistic, and Jesus even testified of that, because Jesus, Jesus had said, you might remember one of his former teachings, where he said that that uh, um, uh, he, he, he he talked about how your your children go to and fro to make one convert. So there was a, it was a, uh, really quite evangelistic the Jews were in those days. So that there were these Greeks, and they come and they come to Philip, one of the disciples of Jesus, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they began to ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, why would the Greeks go to Philip of all the twelve apostles? Well, it gives us a little clue that there might have been a reason, rather than just being a random apostle, it says that Philip was from Bethsaida of Galilee. So, if Philip is from Galilee, they know that Nazareth is in the Galilee, and so Jesus is from the Galilee, not born in the Galilee. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in the Galilee. They figured, you know, this is, this, is, this is a homeboy. Philip grew up in the same area as, as Jesus. Let's ask Philip. You know, if anybody's tight with Jesus, it's got to be Philip. They're from the, the, the same, same area. <clears throat> they grew up together. And so Philip has a brother, and his brother's name is Andrew. And so we know... that that there were 12 apostles, the 12 apostles were not from 12 different tribes because there were at least three sets of brothers among them. So they couldn't be from the 12 tribes. So there was not representation from all the 12 tribes. But Philip comes, and Philip doesn't really know what to do. I mean, these Gentiles now want to see Jesus. You say, well, they're Jews. Yes, they follow the Jewish practices, but there was then as there is now in Israel... ...and every other place in the world... ...discrimination... ...and, and uh, uh, even though these Greeks... ...were following the Jewish practices... ...very often they were not... ...invited into the inner circle of things... ...because they had come from a Gentile background... ...and we see the same thing happens... ...later on in the church... ...20 years later in Antioch... ...where there's some... ...some uh, Jews... So, ...some Gentiles that had become Jews... ...and then had started following Jesus and that those who were ethnically Jews didn't know how to deal with them. And that, that issue is raised, actually, in, 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 uh, particularly in, in Acts chapter 15, but we're not going to look at that today. So, so, they come to Philip, and Philip doesn't know what to do, so Philip goes and he speaks to his brother Andrew. He told Andrew, and then it says in verse 22, and then Andrew and Philip came together. So, at least now, you know, they got a little bit behind them, and it, just saying, uh, Jesus, there's some Greeks there, who want to see you. Now some people think that, that Jesus never really answered this. Later on in this passage, he answers specifically to this question as to whether they can see him. But Jesus first starts a discourse. And Jesus said in verse twenty three, so so Andrew and Philip just came to ask Jesus, uh, there's some Greeks there that would like to meet you. And then Jesus goes off on this discourse, and probably Andrew and, and Philip are like you know, <laughs> Just <laughs> ask question on their behalf. But Jesus starts speaking. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now look at the way that Jesus speaks of this. He says it is the hour... The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Jesus is not going to be crucified on this day. This is Monday. He's going to be crucified on a Friday. But he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And if you want to take the Word of God literally on every aspect of time, how do you deal with a verse like this? Jesus was not crucified that hour. When he says the hour has come, he means, okay, now the period has come. It's still four days off, still four days off, but the hour has come. The Bible says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Now, that was written over 2,000 years ago. So maybe it doesn't apply anymore because it says, behold, today is the day. Well, does day mean that very day? Do you see what I mean? So, there are clear instances here that we have in the Bible, that sometimes when it comes to time, it's relative and it's, it's giving us some context, but it's not absolute as we view time. Because if somebody says, well, I'll take care of it this hour, then we suppose that within that hour, it's going to be done. The Bible didn't suppose that because it's a different culture and a different time. And so we need to look at it within the context in which it was given, in the context of the period. So he says, he says uh, uh, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Look at how he views his death. His death, in his mind, he views this as a glorification. The Son of Man, this is mostly how Jesus referred to himself. Most of the time he referred to himself as the Son of Man. It is not a unique title, you look in the Old Testament, God had a particular prophet that he often called Son of Man. And, and, uh, uh, but he referred to himself as the Son of Man. And he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus speaks of death, his own death, as glorification. Jesus speaks of death of the believer in the New Testament as a state of sleep. He never speaks of it as death. Unless he's trying to get through to people. He said, you know, Lazarus is asleep. They said if he's asleep, he'll wake up. And he said, look guys, he's dead. But he spoke of death of the believer always asleep. Of the unbeliever, he spoke of as death. Because it was a temporary state in his mind. For every believer, they will rise again. And this is a blessed hope that we have. One day, you will lose somebody that's very dear to you if you haven't already lost that person that's very dear to you. And just remember, if they are in Christ, it is a state of sleep. Their spirit has already risen to be with Jesus. They are very comfortable in spirit and their body will one day also be raised. This is a blessed hope that we as believers have. We do not need to fret as the world does. One day you're going to have a parent and you're going to have children and you're going to hold this baby child and you're going to think, how would I ever survive if I were to lose this child? This is the thought that comes to parents. When you treasure this child, you, and all you can do is say, Lord, into your hands I commit them. Because in you, their life is eternal. He speaks of Himself as being glorified. You see, He speaks of death very differently than the world views this. Then He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And He's speaking, first of all, of Himself. Unless He dies, there's not going to be a way for any of these people. Had the Jews accepted Him, He still would have had to die on the cross, but He would have immediately... After three days, raised from the dead and set up his messianic kingdom. Because they didn't receive him, he still was killed, raised from the dead. His messianic kingdom will be set up. When he returns, it will be set up. But we are now living in this time that is called the church age and this time that is spoken about in the New Testament, which is called the Mystery Age, something that was not spoken about in the Old Testament because it never should have been. It came because of an open rejection of the Jewish leadership, as we've covered in the past. So he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. The Bible clearly says that if a righteous man, a righteous man, meaning Jesus, were to die for his sins, A righteous man, he would have only saved himself, but because Jesus was the Son of God, his death opens the way for the rest of us. The Bible says, if Daniel, speaking of him as a righteous man, if Daniel had died, he only would have saved himself if he had been sinless. But he would not have saved others. He says, he says, but this way I can pave the way for you and I'm going to bear much fruit. He speaks of the giving of himself as bearing fruit. Then he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Whoever loves his life loses it. Now think about this. What breeds discontentment in life? What breeds discontentment is not to be without something. To be without something does not breed discontentment. It is to get that very thing And to realize that there's no fulfillment in it. You take, for example, a movie star. You take, for example, movie stars where they're really good looking. I mean, some of these folks are so good looking, it's it's like in our dream we wish we could look like them. They make so much money that they can just flaunt it around. Yet so many of them are on alcohol and drugs and commit suicide and go through one relationship after another, totally unable to hold on to relationships. Two, you know, really good-looking, famous movie stars get married. You know that within three months, I mean, it's, it's over. That is the norm for them. Why is that? You would think that having everything, they'd be really content. But just the opposite occurs. Does not life testify to us? Is it not self-evident that those who have everything are really discontent? So he says that he who loves his life loses it. If everything is about me, you're going to be at a terrible loss. If everything is about me and making myself happy and getting myself the house that I want, the car that I want, the spouse that I want, the children that I want, the job that I want, it's all about me, you will be miserable in life. It is not being without something that makes you miserable. It's getting all those things and realizing that there's no joy in it. That's misery. He says, he who loves his life loses it, but he who hates his life in this world Keeps it to life eternal. He who hates his life in this world. In other words, to the extent that I give my life, it makes me happy. It brings joy. To the extent that I give my life. Remember Mother Teresa. Never is it documented that she was in the psychiatrist's office laying on the couch saying, when is anybody going to do anything for me? You know, I kind of want to be ministered to now. No, I mean, there is a woman who poured herself out and there was no lack. She was so content. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. When we hate our lives in this world, we keep it to life eternal. In other words, it is is taking of our lives and projecting it into the lives of others. We take of our life and we place it into the life of others. And it, it causes us to retain our lives. To the extent that you give of yourselves. When I see a family. I just was talking to a family in the church. And I said to the, uh, to the man, where's your wife and your other daughter? He says, oh, they're, a way, they're away on a mission trip. I know that there's going to be great contentment in that family. When they are away on a mission trip. So here you have the the wife and one of the daughters is away on a mission trip in, in Central America. This brings great contentment. This brings great peace. It is when we give of ourselves that there is peace. If it is all about you and your career and your grades and your classes and your job and your family, you will be miserable. But to the extent that you take of your time And you give something into the lives of lives of others, that will bring peace in your life. And if you say, "Well, I'm just so busy," you have no idea how busy I am. Well, then you're too busy. All right? Then give something up, so that you can pour out something into the life of another. If you can't sacrifice a few hours each week to pour into the life of another for free, where you're not compensated in this life. you will be miserable. But when you pour out into the life of another, it will bring contentment and it will bring happiness into your family. This is the best thing that you can do for a family, that you give of something for someone else. And you say, well, you know, isn't it dangerous to go to Central America? You know, there's drug cartels down there. Yes, it's dangerous. But this is what He calls you to. He says, if you're not willing to give your life... You're not going to have it. Yes, it's dangerous, but did you know people die sitting right here in Houston? People die on on our roads all the time. The best place to be is in the center of God's will. Sure, it is dangerous to live in certain places and to go out in ministry and do certain things. That is part of the Christian life. It is dangerous. And remember this, when you are parents, it is not Satan that keeps people off of mission fields. It is Christian parents that keep people off of mission fields because they don't want their kids going into the mission field because they're worried about them. Remember this. I'm not picking on your parents. I'm picking on you when you are Christian parents that you need to pray over your children. Lord, I release them into your service. Wherever you would have them, I release them. And pray this prayer. Lord, let them go wherever you would have them. Because what happens with Christian parents, it is pure and utter selfishness, because they love their children more than they love God. Jesus said, if you don't love me more than, you, more than you love your wife, your children, you're not worthy of me. That's what he said. It is not easy to release one's children. So you start praying early, Lord, let me release them into your service. That is the best thing that you can do. He who loves his life loses it. Now in, verse, in, in, in uh, uh, verse 25. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. You want to serve God? You must follow Him. You must follow His pattern. You want to serve Jesus? He has a pattern of service. A pattern of doing something for others. You want to serve it? He says, you've got to follow me. And where was He going? He was going to the cross. You want to serve Jesus? Whoever, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. You can't serve God without following the pattern that He has demonstrated for us. How do I know? Because He said it right here. Could He have been more explicit? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. Where I am, my servant needs to be. And then he says this, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Think about that. If you serve God, the Father will honor you. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is tremendous. Think think that the God of the Creator of all the universe looks down from heaven and says, look at that one serving my son Jesus by doing what he does. Let's bless him today. Let's bless him really, really good today. This is the promise. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To be honored by God is tremendous. To be honored by God. I am a living testimony of the honor from God. I am in places that I don't deserve to be. People think that my IQ is 80 points higher than it really is. I have just been so blessed. God has just taken my career. and just Every time there's some blessing, I just find myself right in the place where it happens. We started working in this area called molecular electronics. Why? Because I read one article... In a, in a journal about these molecules that could switch. This was in 1988. I was just starting as an assistant professor. I was 28 years old. And, and uh, um, then I recruited these first group of graduate students and I put projects before them. And my first graduate student said she wanted to work on that project. And I was like, you want to work on that? You know how wild of a topic that is? Well, anyway, she started working and we started publishing these papers. Then... About five years later or seven years later, this term nanotechnology took off. I didn't coin the term. But the, the term had been coined a long time ago, but it really started to take off. I had never heard it. And then people started saying, what's nanotechnology? And then guess what happened? Everybody started pointing. Well, that's what this guy Jim Tour does. We were doing nanotechnology before it became an interesting area to be in. I mean, that people, everybody's looking at me. And I was called to the National Science Foundation to give them a definition of nanotechnology. God has done this throughout my life. He has just honored me in ways that I don't deserve. Because I serve His Son a little bit. You serve His Son. you be about His work. Here I was an assistant professor and every Monday night, I was in a maximum security prison ministering Jesus Christ. I wasn't feeling particularly good. I had an ulcer at the time. And they, they, they didn't have uh, um, uh, all these, the, these proton pump inhibitors back then. I mean, all you really did back then is you, 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 you swallowed calcium carbonate to try to neutralize it, and it didn't work very well. And, uh, um, but still I did it, because I knew I had to be about something. You serve God, and He will honor you. You. He will honor you. That is a promise. It's not my promise. I don't have to honor you. He will. You want his blessing? He knows how to do it. I mean, he will put you in places that you never dreamed of. There's a verse in Second Chronicles chapter chapter uh, uh, a verse in Second Chronicles chapters sixteen, verse nine. It says, "For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the throughout the earth." that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. It means just looking. That He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. You give your life for the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be greatly blessed. It says God is just looking. Can you imagine God of all the universe is just looking? Boom. He'll see you. He will see. Nobody else has to see you. All who has to be seen, you have, God will see you. God will see your service, and He will strongly support you. It doesn't say He will support you, it says He will strongly support those whose heart is completely His. I mean, that's a really good one to have on your side. You want somebody important to be aware of you when it comes time to having a career? God can be on your side. You want somebody important to put you in the right place to find a good, selfless spouse? God is one who is a very good matchmaker. Get Him on your side. You want one to put you in a place when the world comes against you and starts accusing you of things to stand right beside you, as Paul said, on that night the Lord Jesus stood at my side and said, you've solemnly testified in Jerusalem, you must testify in Rome also. You want somebody to solemnly, to stand at your side and solemnly speak to you? God is a good one to do that. You put yourself in a position of service. Service to His Son. And not loving your life. Remember, it's not about me anymore. It's not about us It's about Him. It's about His interests. And He will put you in positions. And His eye will see you. And He keeps strongly supporting you. And He teaches you His ways so that your colleagues begin to really respect you because you start walking in a godly way. And all of this comes together as you meditate on His Word. And He teaches you these things. And He will raise you up. And He will do great things through your life. And that's why I can watch young people. And I know what young believers' lives are going to be like. How do I know? Not prophetic at all. It's just data points to me. And I look at young people serving and I can tell that young person is going to find a really good spouse. That young person is going to have a good career, a good life, and a good family. I can tell. Just by their level of service just by the level at which they extend themselves into areas in which they're not comfortable, like teaching a Bible study. You say, well, I don't really feel equipped. Nobody feels equipped to teach a Bible study. It's not based on feeling equipped. It's based on service. It's based on duty. And you go forth and you do it. I can look at people and know that they're going to have a good life. I can look at other people and know that they're going to have a hard life. Because they're selfish. Because everything is about them. And I can look at them and say, they're never going to be content. They will never be happy. Because it's all about them. To me, it's just data points. No prophecy. I just look at it in the context of what the promises of the Word of God are. Whoever comes to me shall follow me. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. And whoever serves me, the Father will honor Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth of it. I pray for these young people that this day they would make a commitment not to love their lives lest they lose it but to give their lives in service to our Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, I pray that you would take these young people and give them a heart for you and that they would serve you. Have mercy on them. Lord, I pray that you would so draw them to yourself and so use them that they would experience the blessings in their lives as I have experienced, which have been gifts from heaven, showered down upon my lap, overflowing, unable to contain it all. Have mercy on them, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.